Good afternoon, church. How is everyone doing? Good. It is good to be here with all of you. We are continuing our series through the book of, uh, almost like, uh, like Pete said, to the Philippines, but to the Philippians. Uh, I wonder if it's the, there's a connection there in terms of the way they were named. I want to ask all of you, uh, have you ever had a time when you were about to eat something and, and you put it into your mouth and you realized it did not taste the way that you anticipated it to taste? I remember my friend was uh, sharing an example. He was sitting over at somebody's house drinking tea and they poured him a cup of tea and so what he did was, you know, he got the sugar, he put it into his tea, he stirred it up, and, you know, he got a little cookie, and, and, and he bites the cookie, and then he puts, you know, gets a sip of that tea, and he can't understand what is happening. Like, his mind was confused for about a split second, and he's, he's confused, and he almost spit his tea out in front of everyone, only to realize that he actually, that wasn't sugar, it was table salt, and he put that into his tea accidentally. You can imagine the, the confusion, right, that occurs in your mind when you're expecting something completely opposite. It might even taste good, but it's not what you expect. Well, there are certain Bible passages that we find in Scripture that might be just as confusing, that might be just as almost disorienting and dizzying when we read them for the first time. In fact, there might be times where we read them and we think, does it really, does it really say this? Or am I just misunderstanding it? And today we're going to be looking at one of those passages. If you can, open up your Bibles. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at the last four verses of this chapter. So we've, this is the, the last sermon on the first chapter of Philippians, and let's start with verses, verse 27, and we'll go all the way to 30. Paul writing to the Philippians says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponent's this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if, if those of you that were here last week, you remember we looked at the Christ-centered life, right? And the way Paul was making a decision as he's sitting in prison and thinking, should I go, should I remain? And we see the Christ-centered life that he was living. And now what he does is he kind of points the, the letter back to the Philippians, back to his audience, and instinctively back to us. So the, there's a couple of, there's four main points. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna breeze through them and I'm gonna stop on our last one and spend the most time there. The first thing we see here in this text is Paul talks about our identity. Verse 27, if we go to the next slide. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This word manner of life in the Greek, it, it, it's, it's almost like He's saying, be good citizens. It's, it's related. It actually has the word city in there, polis, like the word, you know, metropolis or Minneapolis. He's saying, be a good citizen, be a worthy citizen, a, a city dweller, right? Someone who knows how to behave with other people, who knows how to interact. Make sure that the way you live is upstanding and is a good reflection of the gospel that we have been saved by, be a good citizen. And we read in Philippians 3, just two chapters over, Paul writes that our citizenship is where, church? In heaven, right? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. So church, we are called to live to a higher standard. Not even the standard of this world, but a higher standard to be citizens of heaven and reflect that. 
The second thing we see is our unifying goal. In verse 27 says, So that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see, church, when we lose sight of the gospel, when we lose sight of the mission that God has left for us here on earth, what do we start doing? We start striving, but not side by side, but against one another, right? When we forget about God's desires and God's goals and God's mission, all that, is, all that remains is my goals, my desires, my mission, right? And it's all about me and what I want and my comfort. And we begin to fight against one another. In fact, we'll see all, all over the letter of Philippians. Philippians were really struggling with unity, and that's going to be the message next week. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. It's about unity and the poison. what poisons unity. And, and, and it's even here. We see if we lose sight of the gospel, if we lose sight of our common mission, we will fight one another. It will be about me and my comfort and I want it this way instead of how does, what does God want from us? Striving side by side next to one another. Notice this in your life. Whenever there is conflict, especially amongst believers, we have lost sight of the greater goal of God. We have lost sight of the gospel. And now it's about me and my desires. Third, we see our witness. Verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is fascinating. Our lack of fear in front of our opponents is a testimony to this world. What it does is our lack of fear demonstrates to this world that there is something deeper happening other than just a normal human interaction, right? Because when someone comes to attack you, when someone wants to hurt you, if all you're looking at is this visible world, then what are you going to do? You're going to fear, right? You're going to try to fight back because this world and this life is all that you have. But if your citizenship is in heaven, the world that you cannot see but you see with faith, and when you don't fear, that tells people there is something more happening in this picture. And we, re we hear in history, even in Soviet Russia, testimony after testimony after testimony as people, as you know, the KGB, as they were persecuting Christians, they seen their response and said, this is not normal. This is not a normal reaction. There is something deeper going on. This is not something of man, but this is something of God. Today, we've, a lot of us have really lost sight of this, have we not? We, we see the corruption of society, and we fear. We see corrupt politicians. We see corrupt morals being pushed down to us, to our children, and we fear, right? We're just living in fear. We're always in fear and fear and fear. And if Paul would see us today, he'd say, guys, you're not even being physically persecuted, and you're living in fear. He says, I'm calling you to not be frightened even if you are physically being persecuted. Don't fear because your lack of fear becomes a testimony to this watching world. Trusting in God during fearful circumstances is a very powerful witness of the, powerful of God, the power of God. But this only comes when we have the right expectations. And that's what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend the rest of my message talking about these right expectations. So the last and the fourth point we see here is our gifts. Let's read verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him. Let's stop right there. The word granted in the Greek there comes from the word charisma. Charisma sounds... Sounds uh, familiar, right? When you think of a charismatic person, a, per a person who has charisma, what do you imagine? Imagine someone, someone glowing, someone happy, someone who's igniting other people, right? We, we think of these people as gifted, right? They have a gift, the gift of charisma. 
That's what this word in the New Testament means. It means it has been granted, it has been gifted. It's almost like this, there's this sense of extreme generosity behind this word charisma. It has been charisma to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. What does this mean? This means the fact that if you are a Christian today, the fact that you believe in Jesus, even believe in Jesus, that is a gift from God. It's a gift. And that should humble us. That should really humble us and and just fill our hearts with gratitude towards our God. That he has given us the gift to believe in Jesus and be saved. Look, Ephesians 2.8, it says basically the same thing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The whole point of our faith being a gift to believe in Jesus is so that no one can boast. So no one can think, well, you know what? I did the right thing, so I deserve this salvation. No, you, no, you just received a gift. And we can't be proud and boast of a gift that we received for free, Right? Amen, church? So it has been gifted to us, charisma to us, the gift of believing in Jesus and therefore being saved. So we should be humble. And here's the second half of that verse, and here's where we will spend the rest of our time. It says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffer for his sake. This is that verse, right? That, that, that drinking the tea with, the, with, with salt, right? It, it, it almost could seem like Paul has some dark humor coming out. What, what do you mean, Paul, that, that I have received the generous gift of suffering? How can you call suffering a gift? How can those two things come together? Are you, are you just saying a bad joke? But in fact, we see in Scripture... That suffering truly is a gift. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time today is unpacking this and showing us how it really is a gift. Why is it a gift? The first reason we see in Scripture why suffering is a gift is that it produces endurance. Romans 5.3 Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And hope does not put us to shame. When we suffer, we become more patient. In in a weird way, we receive more strength in order to endure. Suffering is what forges our inner person, our soul, and strengthens us from the inside out. Two, suffering is a gift because it sobers us. 1 Peter 4.1, since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, has stopped from sin. This is not talking about perfection. And we see in the New Testament, right, even Philippians, Paul says, I'm not perfect. It's not talking about perfection. What it's talking about is, is that sobering effect that suffering brings into our life. Right? There's nothing like suffering that just snaps us out of the delusion of sin. Right? We can be so caught up in the desires of our heart and then, and then you just stub your toe and sometimes even that is enough to, re- to realize like, what, what am I doing? What am I desiring? Why do I want this? I remember we were praying with a man who had a very bad cancer and it was right before he was going to go into treatment and he wasn't sure if he was going to survive the cancer. He wasn't sure if he was going to survive the treatment. And I remember how he prayed. He said, Lord, I'm so sorry that I was just so focused on myself this entire time. I'm sorry that I avoided serving you so often. You could see the suffering that sobered him, that seized him from sin. Because suffering forces us to reevaluate our priorities. It removes the delusion of sin. Third, suffering is a gift because suffering is essential to Christianity. 
So, remember Apostle Paul. Before, he was not a Christian, and he actually was persecuting Christians. And what happened is he was on his way to a city called Damascus to persecute other Christians there. And the Lord appeared to him. He blinded him, and so he had to go and stay in a house and just blind, not knowing what's going on. So he's already becoming a Christian. And Jesus appears to another Christian in Damascus and says, Look, I want you to go to this man, Saul, or Paul, And I want you to pray for him. I want him to be healed. And the man said, no, no, no. Lord, I know who this man is. He persecuted Christians. Why do you you want me to heal him? Why do you want to use me for this? I want to avoid him. Look at what Jesus told that man about Paul. He says, Acts 9.15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. And then verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So suffering for Paul, when God called him to suffer, it wasn't kind of an unintended consequence of living for Jesus. Suffering was literally in the job description for Paul. Jesus said, I'm going to use him mightily and I will show him that he, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's wild, church. It was part of his calling. Romans 8, 17 says, We are children, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. In other words, assuming that we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is hard, right? Suffering is essential to Christianity. The question is, why is it essential? Why why does it have to be that way? Well, I think it's because it unites us with Christ. Philippians 3.8 says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage. And then verse 10, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, there is a certain unity that occurs when we suffer for Christ and with Christ. In fact, the the Greek word behind share his suffering, you know what the Greek word is? It's koinonia, which is the same word for fellowship. It's the same word. Sharing and fellowship are the same word in Greek. He said, that I may fellowship with Christ in his suffering. We fellowship with Jesus when we suffer for his sake, just like he suffered for us, which we will remember today as we partake in communion. I remember uh, back in August of 2010, uh, I came a day early to the camp that we were organizing, a church camp, and it, this was in Tahoe. Maybe some of you actually remember this, but anyway, we, we set up the whole camp, we set up all the tents, and we had a huge tent as well, like a 200-person tent. We did everything, we finished the day, we go to sleep, we wake up in the morning, we're eating breakfast, clear Tahoe blue sky, right, and we finish our breakfast, and then we see like a little cloud. I'm like, oh, okay, this, this is cool. Another cloud, another cloud. 30 minutes later, it is just, it is dark, right, with all the clouds. And all of a sudden, like, you know, a couple of drops, and then it just starts hailing. And it is the biggest hail I've ever seen in my life. It's like nickel-sized hail, right? And it just starts falling. So we all run under the trees. We're all hiding. We realize all of a sudden you look at the tent, and it, boom, a tent falls because all the hail collects up, and it just breaks the poles inside the tent. So we start running with tubs over our heads because it hurts if it hits you, right? We start running around trying to save all the tents, get in, throw in. <laughs> Most of them broke, Right? In fact, it was so bad that the huge 200-person tent that we, for the first time, bought and set up, and it had like four huge metal poles, even that thing fell. I have a picture of it if we can go to the next slide. That whole thing fell as well. So we run over to Kmart, for anyone who remembers what that is, and we bought a bunch of tents, right? And and we we start, and it's funny, as soon as everything was destroyed, the, the buses pull in, right? And all the all the kids are looking, they're like, what is, what is going on, right? This carnage, right? And it was, it was almost like 
half a foot of hail initially, right? So we start setting up these tents. Well, what happens to hail? It starts to melt, right, in the summer. And so this camp just turns into this freezing, cold, wet, muddy job site of just setting up these tents with bare hands and everything's freezing and cold and everything, you're wet head to toe, you're muddy. And I remember just finishing that day with all the tents up, like I thought camp was going to be canceled. We finish and I'm just like looking at all the other guys that were there with us from the beginning and we're weary, we're exhausted, but you know what? There's a certain unity that occurs when you go through the storm, when you go through the battle together like that. I mean, there's relationships that, you know, people I didn't even know at all, and those relationships were forged. Other relationships were deepened that I still cherish to this day because we kind of went through that together, right? We fellowshiped in that suffering. This is exactly what happens with us and Christ. You see, church, I want us to think differently about our suffering. I want us to think biblically about our suffering. Suffering is a gift, and it is essential because we are united with Christ in our sufferings. And if we are united with him in suffering, then we will be united with him in his glory. Like the saying says, a friend in need is a friend what? Indeed, right? That's a real friend. Aesop says, fair-weather friends, they're not worth much. Romans 8.17 says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice in so far as you share, same word, fellowship, koinonia, share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Friends, brothers, sisters, we are not with Jesus just for the fun part. That's not what Christianity is. We are united with him in every way possible and imaginable. We love him and we are loved by him We believe in him and he forgives us our sins, but we are also united with him in suffering. We join him in suffering. It's like a couple, right? When they they say their wedding vows on the day, right? The big day. The vows are not there for you to stick through the fun times. You don't need vows for that, right? What are the vows for? The vows are for the difficult time, for the time when it becomes really difficult hard when you begin to suffer together that's the whole point of those vows to be committed to one another both through the good times and the bad there's a reason why soldiers who go through combat together they call each other brothers right brothers brothers in arms a brother has fallen he is my brother and you know what after that war is over they don't go they don't part ways and forget about one another. No, they, be, they remain emotionally bound for the rest of their life because that bond was forged through the fire. It is an honor for each and every single one of them to have been there in the suffering with the suffering of their brothers. Church, it is an honor for us to be like our great king, in every way, shape, and form possible, including the negative things like suffering. Give you one last image. You know, stainless steel, uh, it's an amazing invention, right? It doesn't rust. It's amazing. I think we underappreciate it. But stainless steel, you don't find it in the ground. If we can go back, you don't find it in the ground. Stainless steel, you have to create. And the way you do it is you get iron, so you have a base metal, and you heat it up. If we can go to the next slide, you heat it up until it it turns into a liquid. And then what what you do is you throw in into the iron something like chromium and carbon, right, and all these other elements, and you agitate it, you mix it until it's all mixed together. And then once you harden it, it hardens, you have this new, what you call an alloy, a blend of different metals, right? You see, this, this metal, once it has gone through the fire together, 
and it cools down, it now becomes inseparable. You can't separate the carbon and the chromium from the iron. They are now together. They are one. I'm not saying that suffering saves us. It's not a theology of salvation through suffering. But there's a certain unification that occurs when we share in Christ's suffering for the sake of Jesus. Now, I do want to address what I think is an elephant in the room. I think that what a lot of you are maybe thinking is, well, Peter, how about the 99% of Christians that never were put in prison for Christ, that were never executed for Christ, like all of us, right? How about us? Do, do we even suffer for Jesus? Does, does this passage even apply to us? Will we even share in the glory of Christ if we're just living here in, a, in the freedom of America, you know, religious freedom, we get to do whatever we want, never be persecuted? And this is what I want to focus on the rest of this time is maybe dispelling some misconceptions we might have about suffering and taking a biblical look at suffering. Perhaps when we hear the word suffering for Christ, maybe what we imagine is a person intentionally inflicting suffering upon us, right? Like persecution, getting whipped, being beheaded, getting put into prison, like, or, or at least, you know, being reviled on a Facebook group, right? Like at a minimum, right? Like that's the minimum type of suffering for Christ. But that's not the only definition of suffering that the Word of God uses in fact, we will see that much of suffering is not produced by others. The first type of suffering is persecution. I think I don't need to show this to you in the Bible. I think you, we all understand what this is referring to. The second type of suffering that we see in Scripture are the sacrifices for ministry. So Philippians 3.8, again, the same letter we're going through. Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For, this, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I've lost everything, he's saying. And I count it as garbage. All those things I lost is just garbage to me in order that I may gain Christ. Here's what we need to realize. This suffering the loss of all things that Paul suffered, most of it was voluntary. It wasn't something that people came and took away from him. Right? Galatians 1.14, Peter, uh, Paul writes, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. You realize that Paul, his career in Israel, he was a rising star. Right? His career was set. He was probably on track to become one of the 70 rulers of the entire nation, part of the Sanhedrin, right? No one came and took those things away from Paul. He gave all those things away for the sake of Christ. We read the same thing with Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, we'll be looking at that next week. But it talks about how Jesus, who though he was in the form of God became a human being. He limited himself. And not just a human being, he took on the form of a servant, of a slave, right? That is suffering. That is suffering, considering all that, that Jesus had, all that he was giving up. He, he had this, right, the very top, and he gave all of that up, and he became a human. He subjugated himself to humanity. That's suffering. And that, no one forced him to do that. Nobody persecuted him into doing that. He did that voluntarily. It was a sacrifice for ministry. So it's very important that suffering for the sake of Christ is not just what other people do to us because we're Christians. Anything that we do for the sake of obeying Christ that is not in our best interests here on earth, right, can be considered as suffering. Any sacrifice for Christ is suffering for 
Christ. Let me give you another biblical example to just drive this point home. 2 Corinthians 11.25. This is Paul describing kind of all the bad things that happened to him because he was serving Jesus. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is fascinating. Notice in this list of suffering that Paul gives us, there are intentional forms of persecution, beaten with rods, danger from people, but then there's so many other things that have nothing to do, that are not even brought about by people, right? Like shipwreck, like nobody planned the shipwreck. Toil and hardship, hard work for Christ is suffering for Jesus. Sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, cold. Even the daily pressure, his daily anxiety about how the other churches are doing, that also was a form of suffering for Christ. Paul doesn't differentiate between the suffering caused by people and the suffering that is an indirect result of him living for Christ, you could say, you could describe it as it's the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus. I find it fascinating that even his worry for the other churches is suffering for Christ because it's all for the sake of Jesus. And all, in all of it, he was fellowshipping with Jesus. So, first one's persecution, second type of suffering, sacrifices for ministry. The third one that we see in Scripture is actually resisting temptation. Hebrews 2.18, this is speaking about Jesus. It says, for because he himself, Jesus, has suffered, same Greek word, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Did you catch that? Did you ever realize that resisting temptation Fighting off the pull of temptation is a form of suffering. It's a form of suffering that not just we experience, but that Jesus Christ himself, the perfect son of God in the flesh, also experienced. Jesus also suffered while being tempted here on earth. And in fact, that becomes the basis on how we understand that Jesus understands us and connects to us because he experienced suffering as well. The, the, the suffering of resisting temptation. Church, let's acknowledge it. Resisting temptation is difficult, is it not? And we read that it was difficult for Jesus and it's difficult for each and every single one of us. And here's the good news. The Bible considers that, defines that as suffering. It takes suffering to stay pure. It takes suffering to resist temptation. And when we resist temptation, we are suffering for the sake of Christ because we want to be pure like Christ was. And we actually fellowship with Jesus in that suffering. We are united with him like brothers in arms who are fighting the good fight together. We share and we fellowship with him by resisting temptation. Related to it, number four, is self-denial. Luke 9, 23 says, and this is Jesus speaking, says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Back in the days of Jesus, if you would see a man carrying a cross, that you would know that that is a man who is about to 
die, right? That, that, that's a person, that's, that's like someone being rushed to the ER and you realize they've lost a lot of blood and, and they, they have hours left. It's a man carrying a cross means he's about to die. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's saying, die to yourself every single day. Die to our selfish desires, to our self-centered dreams, to our ungodly goals. And he contrasts dying to ourself to gaining the whole world, right? Because gaining the whole world is the ultimate desire of all people. Now, most of us are sitting here thinking, I don't want to gain the whole world. I just want to raise, right? <laughs> That's all I want. Gaining the whole world is... It's a way of saying, receiving all that my heart wants, right? It's Jesus says, so what if you receive everything here on earth that you could ever wish or dream of? If you receive all of that, what's the point? If you end up losing your own soul. Jesus says, no, we must lose our lives here. We must deny all the things that the world is offering us, the things that don't glorify him take up the cross, die every day to be dead to this world and our selfish desires. Church, denying ourself, denying my flesh, which makes its demands every moment of my life and every moment of your life is one of the most practical ways for all of us to suffer for Jesus and with Jesus when we do it out of obedience for Jesus. And that is in direct opposition to living for ourselves and gaining the whole world. That honors Christ. I want to take a step back from all this right now, from these four types of suffering, and I want to give us some practical application. So, yes, when we go out and we tell people about Jesus, which we should, and they don't accept us, and they don't like us, and they reject us, and maybe they slander us, that's suffering, absolutely, because we want to be accepted, right? But we see that suffering for Christ is more than just rejection. Because based on sacrifices for ministry, based on resisting temptation, on self-denial, there's so many other ways to suffer for and with Jesus Financial generosity, one of the most obvious ways, right? That's a form of suffering for Jesus. Did you realize that? Did you connect that in your mind? Financial generosity is a, is a form of suffering for Jesus. You know why? Because when, when I give away some of my finances, that's finances I could have spent for myself here in this life and to better my life here in this world. And so I'm, I'm denying myself and I'm not receiving all that I could have, right? I'm limiting myself, kind of like Jesus limited himself when he became a human being. Generosity with our time is another form of suffering. Because that's time I could have spent on myself, investing into my own self and my own little dominion and kingdom here on earth. And I'm giving it away with no expectation to receive something back. And I'm not just talking about serving here at church. I'm talking about any form of helping people for the sake of Christ, to bring him glory. All of that is suffering for him. So yes, church, maybe serving Jesus in your life means that you're going to make less money. Maybe. Maybe serving Jesus means that you're going to have less time for yourself. Jesus does not expect us to serve him, to, to give to him, only if it doesn't cost us any money or any time. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus calls people to go die. And for us, our criteria is, well, if it's going to inconvenience me in any way, if it's going to cost me any time or money, then, then count me out. I need something way more convenient. I need something that's going to fit me. I'm not saying that we all need to go quit our jobs and go into full-time ministry for free. That's not what I'm saying. All of us have a calling from God. All of us. But I'm certain 
that there are ways that God is calling each and every single one of us right now. I'm not talking about tomorrow or the day after. I'm, I'm saying right now, ways to give, ways to serve, ways to suffer for Jesus. And, and I'm sure they feel slightly uncomfortable, and that's okay. Us not fulfilling our potential in this world is also a suffering for Jesus because we're giving that potential away for him. Continuing, we've got two more last forms of suffering for doing good. First Peter 3.17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Remember Joseph in uh, the book of Genesis, when he refused to sleep with Potiphar's wife, and, and she said, oh, he tried to rape me, right? And so, and for that, he got put into prison, right? He was doing good, but he suffered for that. Well, that brings glory to God. Being honest at work and maybe not getting that promotion or that client or some other advantage, it's a form of suffering for Christ. Because you do not want your sin to be a bad witness to this watching world, and this world is watching all the time, all the time. Because you don't want to put Christ's name to shame, Maybe we have to suffer financially, choosing not to lie to the government so that you don't ruin your testimony before this world. Yeah, you might pay more in taxes. Yeah, you might lose some benefits. But at least Christ's name will not be put to shame. I always try the, the social media test, right? If all of this was on social media, on the headlines, would that bring honor to Christ? If not, then we probably shouldn't be doing it. And the last one is natural suffering. Natural suffering. And this is, this is the most amazing one. Even non-ministry-related suffering, even that kind of suffering matters in the eyes of God. Look at what James says in James 5.10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke to you in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Right? It's one thing to, to say, Lord, I want to I honor you. I'm going to sacrifice my money. I'm going to sacrifice some time right, for you, Jesus. It's another, you know, it's one thing to have people speak against you because you're talking about Jesus and they don't like that. But James takes it to a whole new level. James brings up the example of Job, which is very interesting. Because Job wasn't trying to do any kind of specific ministry. He, there, there was nothing, right? He was just trying to live a righteous life before God. That's it. And all of his suffering, it wasn't persecution. It was what you can call natural, right? It wasn't even a sacrifice for ministry. It wasn't even him choosing to deny himself. Job, in fact, had no idea that God was using his suffering for his glory. Job had no idea. Remember, Job never read the first chapter of the book of Job. He didn't know about any of that. He didn't know about the wager that God made with the devil. He didn't understand the cosmic significance of his suffering at all. For all he had was meaningless suffering. No one explained to him that here's what you're about to go through. It's for the glory of God. It's going to be in Scripture for thousands of years to encourage millions and billions of people. He didn't know any of that. It just suddenly came upon him one day. No explanation. And guess what? It left with no explanation. There was no explanation. But so for all James knew is for all Job knew is that he was suffering for no purpose. But James tells us that the Lord had a purpose. In fact, we read in Ephesians 1.11, the Holy Spirit tells us, the same Holy Spirit that, that orchestrated the whole situation with Job, right, is the same one who tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Meaning, God does all things... And he has 
in infinitely wise reasons for all that he does, including every moment of our suffering. And the only question that remains, especially when it comes to natural suffering, will it break my faith? Will it break my faith? Will I curse God like Job's wife was tempting him to do? Telling him, curse God and die. How will we respond to that suffering? Or will we remain steadfast like Job? It wasn't pretty, but he was steadfast. And through that, he brought glory to God. And we too can bring glory to God through all forms of suffering. Through our patience in our suffering. These texts, James, Ephesians, we can argue that all suffering, whether it's active persecution, self-inflicted sacrifice, or suffering that comes upon natural causes like sickness and cancer, or the death of a loved one, or financial loss, or whatever it is, all of this suffering can and will bring glory to God if we continue to trust God through the midst of it. And here's another thing I want to mention. Don't worry about, well, am I suffering enough for Jesus? Don't worry about that question. Trust me. It's God's job to give us the gift of suffering, right? We don't give ourselves that gift. God gives us the gift of suffering. We don't need to look for suffering. In fact, Jesus teaches us to pray, Matthew 6, 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If God wants us to die for him, he will bring us up until that moment, and he will give us the grace we need. If God wants us to move to another country and become a missionary, he will lead us up until that moment and build it up. Don't worry about some futuristic scenarios in the cloudy future. Our job is to respond to our suffering in a faithful way every single day, right? Every day. It's our job to be faithful with the real circumstances that God has placed in front of me right now, today. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 34, Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Sufficient for the day is its own suffering. As I call the band up, I just want to say, church, remember that a lot of suffering is just us denying ourselves. That is suffering for Jesus. Taking up the cross, living for him instead of ourselves. And the Bible says that that's a gift. That's a, that's a generous gift because it is an honor to join our master in the way that he lived. A life of sacrifice, a life of not pursuing what is best for me here in this world. Because you know what, church? If Jesus just pursued what was best for him, like feeling-wise, right? We would not be here right now. We wouldn't have communion. We wouldn't have church. We wouldn't even be Christians. We wouldn't be saved. If Jesus, all he wanted to do was avoid all pain and sacrifice and discomfort, he would have never become a human. He would have never came here and died for us. Dear friend, this is what Jesus has done for you and for every single one of us so that we can be saved. Through his suffering, we receive forgiveness and eternal life. Through his suffering, we are freed from our sins completely, washed away by the blood of the Lamb. So come to him. Trust in him. Follow him. And look at all the blessings that his suffering brought. Right? The gospel doesn't end with suffering. It's a key of the gospel. It's a very important part. But the gospel, church, does not end with suffering. I know this is a heavy message, but we got to look past it, right? It doesn't end with suffering. The gospel ends in glory, in heaven, in the resurrection and the ascension and Jesus sitting on the throne, reigning and ruling. 
That's where the gospel ends. Humanity restored, purified, forgiven, abiding with God forever and ever. That's where the gospel ends. The gospel isn't just this moment of suffering on the cross. And believe me, in God's gospel and God's big story, which each of us are a part of, our stories, they don't end with suffering. Suffering is just a bridge. It's a necessary evil. And not an ounce of suffering will be wasted by God. I promise you. He is preparing for us glory beyond our wildest imaginations. Whatever it is that you desire and want here on earth is just an echo, just a faint little scent of what God is preparing for us in heaven because that is where we find true and full and pure life, untainted by sin. That's why 2 Corinthians 4.17, let's stand because we're going to have a moment, a minute of reflection time and I'll pray, but I, I want to leave us with this promise that God gives us in his word. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for coming down, denying yourself. We thank you for your sacrifice, for your suffering. And as hard as it is to say this, Lord, we thank you for the gift of suffering. It's a tough pill to swallow. But I pray that we would see the purpose behind all of that, your infinitely wise purposes. It's not meaningless suffering, but it is for something that you are using to prepare an eternal weight of glory. Help us see that with eyes of faith, to look past the darkness and the dark clouds and see what you are preparing for us and to receive strength to endure in this present moment. Lord, we thank you. We worship you. We pray this all in your name. Amen.